<laughs> Good morning. Man, it's great to see you guys. Thanks for being here. I'm Brent. Man, it's, uh, and I'm excited about today. I have a question. Give me some answers here, so feedback to me. I'm very curious. What's the most outrageous price you've ever paid to attend something? Could be a concert. Could be uh, an event. Now, it could be a monetary price. It could be a physical price. It could be a relational price. You know, there's all kinds of prices that we can pay. What's the most outrageous price you've paid for something? You don't have to tell me the price. You just tell me what it was. <laughs> for what? What did you buy? Pavarotti concert. Okay. Awesome. I might be willing to pay that. What else? Again, you don't have to tell us the price. Just tell us what you went to. Grocery. I went to the grocery store, and that was the most outrageous thing that I bought. <laughs> I love it. Somebody in the first service came to me afterwards and said, what I wanted to say was 10% at church. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, that one works too, you know. <laughs> now, somebody in the first service said they paid. They didn't tell us how much. They couldn't remember. But they paid to attend a private concert with Prince. And that just shut down the conversation because nobody had anything else to say after that. Because everybody, I think, was like, okay, wow, that was pretty impressive price to pay. Um, now, I don't remember the monetary price on this one, but I do remember back in high school, 1991, I was a senior. Uh, Garth Brooks was making it very big. And there you go. Uh, what's that Rope in the Wind tour right there? Coming to Little Rock, Arkansas. And back in the day, for those that uh, you guys, most of you guys know this, I don't know if there's anybody in the, I had to explain this in the first service, because the first service, they're like, what, how did you get tickets back then? No, you didn't have a computer to go buy them from Ticketmaster. You know what you did? You had to go to the arena box office, and a lot of times you had to wait in line. Now, fortunately for us and this group that was going, we had a friend who had already graduated high school, evidently with too much time on their hands. So they went and sat outside, stayed outside for a week at the arena box office in Little Rock. I, they, and they got us tickets. It was amazing. I mean, it was a fun concert. Garth Brooks, you know, he sang Friends in Low Places and all that stuff. I didn't have to do that, you know, I, but somebody paid a steep price in order to get those tickets for us. A few years ago, we were in New York and my feelings were very much hurt. We wanted to go see a Broadway show. And we, I mean, man, those tickets aren't cheap either. I mean, they were like over 200 bucks a piece. And of course, my family of, what, nine of us, um, I, that was a decision. I'm like, most of you aren't going. Me, Carrie, and Jaden went. That was it. That was all I was putting the money out for. But I realized that it's kind of interesting when you begin to look and say, what are people willing to spend money on? I mean, what kind of tickets? So I was looking, Taylor Swift's big right now. Her, her concert tickets are very hard to get, a lot of controversy over this, but I did find the cheapest one, at least Thursday when I was looking, was $289 to attend a Taylor Swift concert. I don't see anybody jumping up to run, get your phone out for that. If you, were, if you prefer the good seats, you can get a floor seat for Taylor Swift for almost $1,800, and that's in East Rutherford, New Jersey, for anyone that's interested. You know, I looked and I thought, you know, uh, there's a Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi. Do you guys know this? Now, you can get in the door for $280, and that allows you to watch the race on the screens. So basically, you pay $280 to watch it on TV. But for $7,200, 
you can have the three-day VIP package, which gets you prime race viewing, morning tea, lunch, wines, open bar, entertainment, and access to the pit lanes. All yours for only $7,200. I mean, the Super Bowl, I've heard, can be upwards to ten dollars to $11,000 to attend. Um, any Cubs fans in the room? I'll take you back to the day when they were winning, 2016. They were in the World Series. Sorry, I just have to take that shot. It's more fun when Amy's in the room because she's really a, a, a big Cubs fan. It's always fun to poke that bear. Cubs versus Indians, 2016. I think it was game seven. You know what somebody paid for a ticket to that game? $1.17 million. Yeah. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> and then here's one more for you because you see they're going up, right? Um, one, I, I don't know the guy's name, but he was able to buy a trip or a seat on the Soyuz space capsule that was going to the International Space Station. Anybody know how much he paid? $35 million was the price of admission. Isn't that crazy? Somebody in the first service said, I'd pay it if I had it. <laughs> well, might not if that's all I had, but what is it that makes it worth it? Sometimes you find these big prices, these big price tags, it's going to cost you something. But when we weigh it out and we look at it, we go, it's worth it. I'll do that. We do that, don't we? That's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Last week, we began this new series. We're calling it Heaven on Earth, where we're looking at Jesus and how he taught about this idea called the kingdom of God. And really, it is heaven on earth. And last week, we saw how this is one, if not the top and most important message of Jesus, the one thing that he really talked about the most. And we also saw that because of the resurrection, because Jesus talked about it a lot and because Jesus rose from the dead, we really need to pay attention. We really need to try to understand what is it that he was trying to communicate. Because I think we lose a lot in translation to understand what is kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? And so we're going to dig into this and continue to build on this over the coming weeks and especially today. Because what I want us to look at today, a couple different things. What is a kingdom? What are we talking about? And then also, and probably more importantly, how do we become a part of that kingdom? What does that look like? So last week we did touch on this just briefly, and I want to kind of expound on it a little bit today. What is a kingdom? We don't deal with that language a lot. We talked about the UK and all the fun over there, but what is this kingdom that Jesus is speaking of? There's an uh, author and New Testament scholar, seminary professor, his name is Scott McKnight. And he, was, he tells the story that he says, you know, in his seminary classes, he became very concerned because he would hear these seminary students, you know, these are the future pastors and ministry leaders in the world. And they would come in and they would start talking about the kingdom of God. And he would find kind of like what I shared last week, that they would talk about it in a couple of different ways. Like one way would they would talk about it in just this idea of salvation only. The kingdom of God is salvation. That's what it's all about. Get saved so you can go to heaven when you die. But then on the other side, he heard him talking about that social justice piece. Well, no, it's not going to heaven when you die. It's just do good while you're here. And he really began to think that can't be it. So he talks about in his book, The Kingdom Conspiracy, great book. If you're interested, you should pick it up. And he says what he did is he decided to just dive in. He said, I'm going to look at every 
aspect or every time the word kingdom is used in the Bible? What is, what's it talking about? How is it being referred to? And so what he found is that there's very specific language about how that was used in the Bible. And then he looked in the Old Testament and he said, you know what? When I looked in the Old Testament, it was never talked about in terms of salvation or social justice at all. It was different than that. And even as Jesus begins to use it, there's a different idea behind it. Not that salvation and social justice aren't a part of it. It's just really not what what was in mind. So what did he discover? Well, when he went to the Bible, what he discovered was that a kingdom, first and foremost, has a king. It's not much of a kingdom without a king or a queen, I guess we should say, since Elizabeth just passed away not too long ago. It has a ruling monarch, and in our case, this is a king. And that, to me, that seems self-explanatory. How long can you have a kingdom without a king? Well, I think that's when you have problems, right? If you go back and look in the history of the United Kingdom, especially the problem comes when you have two kings, right? I mean, when you have fighting, it splits things up. But we mentioned last week how you know, we all have a ruling authority in our lives, I mean, here at the church, I have a ruling authority. You may not know this. It's not just Brent gets to do whatever he wants to do, unfortunately. I report to the elder board. That is who is my bosses here. Um, You may have a boss at work or at job or somewhere, or maybe you're to a place in your life where you think, praise God, I don't have that. I am my own boss. But we all have a boss of some kind, a ruling authority, even if we make it ourselves. And you can't miss... The numerous times in Jesus' ministry where we find these royal references, things from the Old Testament and just even in the New Testament where they continue to talk about Jesus as a king, up to and including the point where he's crucified on the cross, or before he's crucified, he's engaging with Pilate, and you know, Pilate saying, well, are you a king? And Jesus admits, yeah, basically he is. And uh, then even as he's crucified above the cross, Pilate puts that placard that says, king of the Jews. So it begins with a king. Secondly, we find that the king has authority or rules and reigns. Um, This to me is also self-explanatory because really, can you claim to be a king if you have no authority? Anybody ever been in a job before where you were given a lot of responsibility, but no authority? Have ever been there? Oh man. How fun is that? Terrible. Thank you. It is awful. Back in my banking days, I was given responsibility for some compliance things. They were very serious because it's something we got evaluated on every year. The regulators came in, they'd look at it, and uh, it was monitoring cash transactions and all this fun stuff. And the nice thing about that regulation was it was not just the bank could be fined. The bank could be shut down if we weren't doing it right. They could get a cease and desist letter. And I, as the person in charge of this, if I was found negligent, I could be fined up to $250,000 and put in jail. That was my responsibility. And they gave me no authority to implement any changes that might need to be changed along the way to make sure we continued to comply with this. Makes no sense, right? I think I got in trouble at one point when I pointed out that I might need a little bit of authority to do more than just say, hey, this is wrong. But it was a problem. And and so when we think about a kingdom, if we have a king with no authority, there's a problem. My favorite quote for leadership says, if you have a leader with no followers, it's just somebody taking a walk. Well, I think the same could be said for a king. A king without any you know, followers, is without any authority, can't really rule, can't really do anything. So you have a king with authority. And then also you do have people. You do have people that are under the rule and the reign of that authority. 
And that's what and Jesus is talking about, especially in the New Testament. He's inviting us in to be citizens of that kingdom. There are people that submit to the king. They, do, they follow his authority or come under his authority. And the Bible talks about this as the body of Christ. And some would even go so far to say that's even describing the church. And I would agree. That's part of what we're doing. We submit ourselves as a people under the authority, the reign of King Jesus. The next part, as we see, is the one I think that we have the most difficult with. This is the most challenging. It's the rules, the laws, or a way of life. That's part of a kingdom. The king gets to establish the values that will be a part of their kingdom. I mean, it's interesting right now. If you watch the UK, what's one of the things that's happening is that Charles is beginning to make some changes to the things that were longstanding traditions and way of the culture of the royalty when Elizabeth was on the throne. The king gets to do that. He gets to say, here's what it means to be a part of my kingdom. And it includes surrendering and submission to the king's way. And in Jesus's kingdom, it's basically surrendering to the law of Christ. And then the final aspect of the kingdom that we find that McKnight mentions in his book is a land. You've got a land. There's a domain. There's a realm over which the king presides. You think about Israel in the Old Testament. You had King David who was over the kingdom of Israel, and he had a very defined geographic area. I mentioned earlier Jesus, as he was talking to Pilate, was talking about his kingdom. And listen to what Jesus says to him. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Now, that doesn't mean there's no realm over which he rules. There really is. In fact, as we begin to think about this, there's the realm of Jesus, and we call this the kingdom of kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And you have kind of the earthly realm that we exist in now. And we do read in the Bible that there are rulers and there are authorities that exist in this world, in this realm. And when Jesus says, my kingdom has come near, what he's talking about is these two realms begin to overlap. And you find kind of in the middle where those two are coming together. And we know that as we read through the New Testament, there's a day where there will be a new creation. It's not a spiritual place. It will be a physical place because we will have resurrected bodies and we will live in that new creation, in this new city, in this new garden with Jesus forever. That realm will completely overtake the existing realm. And uh, we're going to dig more into all these things in the coming weeks. But those are the things that define a kingdom. I think that's a good list. I think it's a good list as we think about what that means. But I also want to dig a little deeper, though, because... It's not just enough for us to know, oh, great, Jesus has a kingdom. Really, the question is, is, am I in that kingdom? Am I a part of that kingdom? If not, how do I get there? Can I, can I get there on my own? When I get there, can I get kicked out? There's a lot of good questions. We won't get to all these today. But is there something we need to do? Is there a requirement that we have in order to be a part of Jesus's kingdom? And I think we have to begin with just the understanding that I think it would be very sadistic of Jesus to tell us that he's got this great kingdom, this beautiful, wonderful place, and us have absolutely no way to get there. Would you agree with that? And I don't think that describes Jesus. I don't think that's the case at all. Now, several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the United Kingdom for the first time. I was there. I, I, it was a wonderful experience. If you've been around me five minutes and you've heard me talk about my trips, you know, if you came up to me after church today and you said, here's a plane ticket to London, I would say goodbye. I'm out of here. I love this city. I don't know why. I just do. 
But you know how I got there? It was very simple. I bought a plane ticket. I drove down to the Des Moines airport. I went through, you know, the ticketing agent and security and all that. I got on a plane. First time I flew to Charlotte, North Carolina. Got on another plane. Flew right into London's Heathrow Airport. Got off the plane. Went to a lovely customs agent who looked at me and said, why are you here? I said, I'm on holiday. They said, how long are you going to be here? I said, a week. They said, have a good time. Stamped my passport, and I was allowed to go in. That was it. And once I was in, guess what? I was free to walk around. I was free to explore. I got to taste the food. I got to see these incredible landmarks. These are just a couple like Big Ben and Elizabeth Tower and the Tower Bridge, saw Buckingham Palace, Trafalgar Square, Got to walk around Herod's, which is amazing. It was better the first time because Carrie wasn't with me to spend my money, but that's okay. (laughs) Second time was a little different. That's where these were from. Is the kingdom of God, is getting to the kingdom of God like that? Is it like jumping on a plane and, and, you know, going through customs and all that fun stuff? Fortunately, Jesus tells us. Jesus doesn't leave it a mystery for us to go, hmm, let's see if they can figure this out. He's not that way. He makes some statements about entering or inheriting the kingdom that give us some insights into how this happened. We're going to look at a couple of them today. But I do want to throw out a word of warning because they can be a bit challenging. They can especially be a bit challenging to us as we live in a very prosperous place, in a very prosperous culture where we have need of very little and we look at things and we think we are very self-sufficient. Individuality is a, is a value and a priority. And what Jesus has to say is going to smack that right in the face. Let's dig in and see what he says. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 18. We find this interesting story. The disciples crack me up. They're following Jesus. They're seeing him do some amazing things. And time after time, you know one of their most pressing questions Jesus, who's the best? (laughs) Who's going to be the greatest? Jesus, tell me. Is it going to be me? It's going to be me, right? I'm going to have the good seats in heaven. That's really all they were concerned about sometimes. It's like, just tell us, who is going to be the best? And Jesus uses this as an incredible teaching opportunity. Look at Matthew chapter 18, starting verse 1. It says, at that time, the disciples come to Jesus and ask, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's your question. Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes uh, one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, I don't know about you, but my, my eyes, when I read that, Go to the very strong language that Jesus says when he says, you will never enter the kingdom. It's like, whoa, that sounds pretty serious. Why is he using such strong language? Well, hopefully it does get our attention, not to scare us, but to give us hope in how he's describing the entrance to the kingdom and what it's like and the intentional way that he talks about how we enter. Now, how did he say you have to be? What did he say? He said, like a what? Like a child, like a child. Now, when I say that, when Jesus says that, like a child, what comes to your mind when you think of that? Jesus says you have to be like a child to enter the kingdom. So what what does that evoke in your mind? What was that? Innocence. Humility. Humility. Dependence. Dependence. 
Love. Always busy. busy. (laughs) Yes, very active. In the first service, I had Leslie's grandchild. Yep, Leslie's old enough to be a grandma. Um, Kinsey, Kinsey Turk is here. And when we think about Kinsey, who's how old? Four, five, five, six, eight months? Oh my gosh, slow time down. Eight months. What can Kinsey do for herself? Leslie? Sit up. Sit up. And really, she's got to probably have some help with that, right? (laughs) She can do it once you put her there. But really, Kinsey can do nothing on her own. She is the most vulnerable that she will ever be in her life. There is, she looks to people to do everything for her. Feed her, clothe her, bathe her, protect her, get her places, everything. There is nothing that she can do. And when Jesus uses that image of a child, and he says, like a child, the most powerless, the most vulnerable, at-risk people in our world are children. That's why if you want to get people stirred up, you start talking about the abuse of children. Why? Because we know they're vulnerable. We know they can't do things on their own. We want to step in and help them. And in the first century, Children were seen as low status as slaves, the bottom rung of the ladder with no status, no honor. They were completely dependent upon others for everything. And if you think for a moment, put yourself in the disciples' position. They were fishermen. They had come from a lowly status already. And they'd hooked their wagon to this rabbi who's going around and teaching, who's gathering quite a following. He's doing some good things, healing people, feeding the masses, teaching crowds. So in their minds, they're probably looking and they're thinking, look at us. Hmm. We've elevated here. We've gone up in the world. We've got some status, some recognition. And then Jesus just cuts the legs right out from under him because he says, you've got to be like a child. You've got to go back to where you were and even below to enter the kingdom. How appealing do you think this would have been to the disciples? Not very. But Jesus is telling them, this is how you get in. And for us who live in a very different culture, we live in this idea of survival of the fittest. Darwinianism has taken over our culture, right? If you are strong, if you are good, if you are fast, if you are smart, you're the best. You get the best. And Jesus says just the opposite of that. It's not about survival of the fittest. It's not about who's the strongest or who's the fastest or who's the smartest or who's the loudest. Because in this moment, what Jesus is saying is he calls for the shy and the vulnerable and the powerless. Those who have to look outside themselves for everything. Those who would be ready to listen, to receive love, to learn, and to grow. That's what Jesus is talking about. And notice the words that Jesus uses around this. He says you must change and become like a child. And I think this shows our natural inclinations and our ways of doing things are not going to get us there. Jesus is saying, you want to go up and to the right. You want status and power and control. And Jesus is saying, you have to change and become like this. 
to change, to turn one's course or be converted are the other aspects of how this Greek word is used here. And to me, as I read that, I thought, hmm, that kind of sounds like the word we used last week when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, he, is near. This repent, change your mind, change your direction. There's change involved because we don't think like this naturally. We, this is counterintuitive to how we would naturally be. And then Jesus says, become, to be created or born. And as I looked at that, I thought, hmm, I've heard Jesus talk about that as well. In John chapter 3, when he engages Nicodemus, and Nicodemus wants to know how to have eternal life, he's basically saying, how do I get in this kingdom? And Jesus says what? You must be born again. Two ideas that permeate the message of Jesus when it comes to this idea of the kingdom. And I don't know about you, but for me, this is such a challenge to my thinking. Because the more that I feel like it's my right to be there, that my success will get me there or my religiousness will be what finally gets Jesus' attention where he looks and goes, good job, Brent, way to go. What I find is that the more I rely on those things is the farther away from the kingdom I find myself. Those things that I want to rest in and rely on, Jesus says, those are the things that are keeping you away. And notice, it's not Jesus saying, those are the things that I'm pushing you away from because of. It's because of me. It's because of what I'm doing. Jesus is standing there wide open saying, the kingdom of God is here. Won't come, come be a part of what I'm doing in the world. And it's me sitting here going, but Jesus, look at how smart I am. I'm really pretty smart. I'm st- I work hard. I do good things. Look at me, Jesus. That gets me there, right? And Jesus just shakes his head. Oh, Brent. Oh, Brent. Oh, Brent. When will you finally get it? We got to lay all that stuff down. We got to lay all that stuff down. One commentary put it this way. It said, true greatness is being found in being little and true importance is being unimpressive. That is what the kingdom of heaven does to the world's scales of values. And we could stop there and have a plenty challenging message, couldn't we? But wait, there's more. (laughs) You go one more chapter over in Matthew's gospel and you find another interaction that Jesus had with a young man who had genuine questions about this. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. It says, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, then keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Interesting question right there. Why did Jesus' answer not satisfy him? Because he knew deep down there was still something missing. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then the disciple, Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
you know, you read this and initially you're, you may feel a little hopeless. I mean, like the disciples responded, <laughs> they can't, who can? But I want you to know these two stories, when Jesus talks about children and the rich, they're really not that far apart. In fact, they're really similar in what Jesus is saying and how he's presenting the same idea from a different perspective. What you have to understand is in the first century, during this time, if you had money, if you had wealth, if you had status, guess what you believed? That they had the favor of God. If you didn't have wealth, if you didn't have money, it was because God wasn't, didn't like you. You didn't have the blessings or the favor of God. You were somehow shunned by God. But if you had wealth, guess what? God had smiled upon you, his blessings, his approval. And that's why the disciples were so astonished when Jesus said what he said, because in their minds, they're thinking, if those people who we believe have the blessing of God on their lives, if they can't get in, what hope is there for us, the, the, the poor, the weak, the outcast? Now, you may not know this, but occasionally Jesus used exaggeration to make a point. He did. And this would be one of those moments. Now, you may have heard in the past that there's a gate in Jerusalem that's called the eye of the needle and a camel had to get down on it. That is so garbage and not true. There is no gate like that in Jerusalem. A pastor made it up. <laughs> but what Jesus is doing is he's saying something so completely absurd. There's no way that it could have happened. Take a needle, an actual needle, no matter how big that needle is, what's the likelihood that you will get a camel to go through it? None, zero, zilch. It is impossible. And that's exactly the point. Absurdity is the point. You can't achieve it now, not ever, no matter how hard you try. And N.T. Wright makes this statement. He says, and it's in that moment that all human calculations and possibilities stop, that God's new possibilities can begin. What is impossible in human terms is possible for God. And like the little child, we have to be willing to come to, to Jesus and in his kingdom, empty-handed, vulnerable, humble, not because God won't accept us, but because everything we think we have to offer, all the reasons we think we deserve to be there are precisely the things that will keep you from surrendering to King Jesus. And the more tightly we hold on to them, the farther away, again, we find ourselves from the kingdom. For the disciples, it was how great they thought they were, and Jesus had to get rid of that thinking. It will keep you from ever seeing your need for Jesus and the kingdom. To the rich man, his religious activity, his goodness, his wealth became the things that we also rely on for acceptance, don't we? But how often, even for us, just like the people in the first century, do we see things in our lives as a blessing from God rather than the detriment to our spiritual growth and development that they really are? That's a challenging message for us, isn't it? We are blessed. We are prosperous. We have need of nothing. And so the message of Jesus when he says, come empty-handed, is challenging. It's very, very challenging. Now, 
Is Jesus saying then do enough good deeds, get rid of your wealth, and you know, if you do the right things, you can get in? Absolutely not. Because as you continue to look, you find out that everything that was needed to be done has already been done. That's what the cross and the tomb, the empty tomb, were all about. But what I love is how we see this entrance into the kingdom described even beyond these two stories of Jesus. Because look at this next list on the screen. We talked about come like a child and come empty hand, but you know what? It talks about how come to be salvation. And it's talking about being born again and redeemed and made righteous and adopted into God's family and set free and liberated and rescued. And all these things talk about how the incredible depth to the different ways that we are brought into God's amazing kingdom. But we do need to remember something. We're going to dig more into this next week. Those who are a part of the kingdom should have a certain look about them. I'm not talking about button-down shirts and gray blue jeans or whatever. But there's something that should distinguish the people, the citizens of this kingdom from the other kingdoms. There should be patterns of life and faith or fruit. You know why? Because a life that is overwhelmingly pointed in the direction of Jesus will begin to look more and more like him. And we'll talk more about that next week. Those who want to enter the kingdom must listen to what the king says and do what he says. And the reward for responding is fellowship with Jesus and his community now and also forever. And those who are his followers, we don't earn anything but the reality of our faith is made evident by how we live. i just close with this. I've got to go to London. I've been there several times now. It is one of my favorite places to go. As I said, I would jump on a plane and leave you tomorrow if I thought I could go spend another week there. When I was there, I had access to go almost everywhere people in the public could go and experience everything that the city had to offer. But there was a difference. And I was aware of that difference. You know what it was? I was a visitor. I was a visitor. I did not have all the rights of the people who were citizens of the kingdom. I couldn't vote. I couldn't run for office. I didn't have access to their health care or their social services. My stay was temporary. And I can't help but wonder... If that isn't how sometimes we approach the invitation of Jesus to become a part of his kingdom. We want to visit. We want to sample some of the restaurants. We want to see some of the sites. But at the end of the day, we see the requirements. We see that it would, what it would take. And more importantly, we see what we might have to surrender. And we think that the cost is too high. You see, I asked you in the beginning, what's the price of admission? What's the price you're willing to pay. You see, really, I think the question becomes, what is the most important thing about you? Or what is the most important thing to you? Because what we see in these stories today is that just like the rich man, just like the disciples, Jesus has a way of putting his finger on those things and asking us, are you willing to lay those things down for me? Your family, your career, your money, yourself, your identity, your politics. What is it that you're being asked to lay down? Because the one thing about a king 
is he never takes second place. King Jesus will never. But what we do find is an invitation to follow. What I love about Jesus is sometimes I feel like we and the way we approach faith, we make this much more a get in or get out. Make this decision, do that thing, it's done. And, and really, I don't see that with Jesus. You know what I see with Jesus? He says, come follow. Check it out. See what you think. Because he's convinced, he knows that if you see who he really is and what he really is offering, everything in this world pales in comparison. And so maybe you're challenged today and you're thinking, do I want to follow Jesus? We're not asking you to give up the rest of your life. We're just saying, take a test and see. But I'm convinced he'll prove himself to be faithful. Jesus will show you some things you need to lay down, some riches you may need to give up. But just know when he does, it's not because he says, I want to punish you and I want to make your life harder. It's because he wants to rescue you and he wants to set you free. Let's pray.